And so it's really hard to measure, particularly something like attitudes, but also how those attitudes might translate into particular policies. Um, I think personally that it really depends on This is the Hardcore Humanities Podcast, plus our researcher recommendations. In each episode, I'll be chatting to a researcher from one of the UK's best universities. We'll discuss their work in any topic within the humanities. And at the end of each episode, our researcher will give us some recommendations for further reading. Links to which can be found on the Hardcore Humanities website and social media. I'm Jamie. And you are welcome to the podcast. Hello, 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 everybody. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, On today's episode, I am joined by Isabel de Sisto. Now, Isabel is a political scientist. Uh, She has a BA in government and also a master's in regional studies, Russia, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Both of the above are from Harvard University. She is currently doing her Master's of Philosophy in Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. Most of her work uh, explores the politics of the former Soviet Union, and she's currently uh, researching for her Master's dissertation on the international response to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, more specifically looking at international aid. Thank you very much for joining me, Isabel, and welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with you giving us uh, a bit more info on how you came to be interested in this topic. Sure. Um, So my first sort of experience with Russia was actually my uncle's wedding. Um, He's an American who is living in Moscow and has been living in Russia for quite some time. And he got married when I was in high school. And so I traveled to Russia for the first time for the wedding, which was quite an experience. Um, I didn't speak a word of Russian. I had no idea what was going on. And I just found it to be such a fascinating experience. And so after that, I began studying Russian. Um, After high school, I spent a gap year before university um, studying Russian and taking classes in Moldova on an exchange program. And then just since then, I've sort of deepened my interest in the region. I've traveled around a lot. um, And it's a really fascinating place to study. Nice, cool. Um, before we get on to Chernobyl, I just wanted to ask you a few questions about your work on the exchange programs between Cuba and the USSR. Um, can you just give us a brief history lesson into why there is such a strong connection between the former Soviet Union, which is a or was a massive country attached to the eastern flank of Europe, and then Cuba, which is a teeny tiny island thousands of miles away in the North Caribbean Sea? What is the connection between these two countries and why is it so strong? Sure. Um, Well, you kind of described it in a great way. They're very far away, the former Soviet Union and Cuba. Um, The history sort of begins, I guess, in 1959 with the Cuban Revolution. And that was when Fidel Castro and his sort of band of, of bearded revolutionaries came to power in Cuba. And after that, in 1961, Castro declared his revolution socialist. Um, When the revolution first happened, the Soviet Union, which at that point was sort of 
at the height, I guess, of its influence in the Cold War. Um, the Soviet Union was a little bit hesitant. They weren't sure if who Castro was. Cuba was very far away, like you say. They didn't really know what this guy was up to. Um, but it became clear after the Bay of Pigs, failed Bay of Pigs invasion um, in 1961, that Castro wanted to establish um, ties with the Soviet Union in part because there was clearly an antagonistic relationship with the United States that was constantly trying to overthrow Castro. And so Cuba very much, um, I argue, at least in my research, a lot of the initiative was taken by Castro in Cuba to sort of build ties with the Soviet Union. And the so for the Soviet Union, um, Cuba, I've always said, was sort of a geopolitical goldmine um, because it was... Although it was far away, it was right on the doorstep of the United States and had this sort of homegrown revolution. And so that was very important. And from that moment on, from around the early 60s, Cuba began to tighten its ties with the USSR. In the decade of the 60s, um, there were some tensions in the relationship and Cuba wasn't totally sort of dominated by Soviet politics. Um, but then I would argue beginning in the 1970s, Cuba really began to adopt and copy um, a lot of the Soviet model of development and became quite dependent on the USSR for economic aid. Um, and that was sort of that was sort of how the relationship went, a very, very tight hegemonic relationship, I would argue, between Cuba and the USSR, where the Soviet Union was um, often exerting a lot of influence in Cuba. And that sort of continued until around the mid-1980s when Gorbachev came into power and started to introduce some of these democratic reforms in the Soviet Union. Um, and then eventually the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 and basically abandoned Cuba. Um, Cuba went through a very, very difficult period of economic crisis, and now you have some ties re-emerging. Um, and I forgot to mention, but of course should mention, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is how people really know about the relationship between Cuba and the Soviet Union. And that was when the Soviets decided to put um, nuclear weapons, or at least missiles capable of carrying nuclear weapons on Cuba. And when the United States found out about that, there was basically a standoff. In the end, the Soviets agreed to withdraw the missiles um, secretly in exchange for some concessions by President Kennedy. And Castro, of course, was very upset by this. But what I think is important to note is that often the narrative around that surrounds the United States and the Soviet Union and their Cold War standoff. And Cuba isn't is considered to be more of the location. But in my research, I really want to uh, highlight Cuban agency as well. So I realize that was rather lengthy, but that's the story. And you researched the exchange programs between Cuba and the USSR. What were these exchange programs? Um, so the Soviet Union for a very long time was home host, played host to many foreign students from quote, the quote unquote global south. Um, so Africa, Latin America and Asia. And there were a lot of students from Cuba. I actually spent a semester in university studying abroad in Cuba, and that's where I met some Cubans who had studied in the USSR and became interested in the topic. 
Um, and what really fascinated me was to learn about the magnitude of these exchange programs. At one point, there were more Cubans in the Soviet Union than all other students from than students from all other Latin American countries combined. And so, relative to the population of Cuba, a small island around 10 million people, the exchanges were massive, um, and they were in all different sectors, with Cubans studying all over the Soviet Union in different republics in different fields. Um, and it was a really, really massive form of cultural and educational exchange, and I would argue soft power, so political influence. And that was what I studied in my master's thesis. Yes, I'm glad you brought up soft power, because I was going to ask you if you could just explain and elaborate what exactly that is. And also, does it have an opposite in hard power? Uh, and what is that as well? Yes. So as you might imagine, um, it does have an opposite. Soft power was a term sort of coined by um, Joseph Nye, who is at Harvard. And basically, he argues that soft power is kind of the power of persuasion, as opposed to hard power, which is more about carrots and sticks. So it might be military or economics incentives. Um, and it's basically a power as way of getting someone else, in this case, another country, to do what you want. And in hard power, you might um, use a trade deal or sort of military might or something like that in order to persuade someone to do what you want. But soft power is a little bit more about getting others to want the same things that you want, so through attraction. Um, in the case of education, soft power is quite prominent. And today we talk about that a lot, particularly with countries like China, which have these Confucius institutes to promote the Chinese language and culture all over the world. Student exchange programs are a big topic of debate as well, because the idea that a lot of political scientists in particular have is that these larger countries, um, such as China or the United States or Great Britain, um, would bring in foreign students in part to facilitate cultural exchange, but also um, in order to kind of impart values and to build alliances. And does it work? And if so, how do you know? How do you measure soft power? Well, that that is really the most contentious kind of topic for debate, right? Because it's difficult to know. It, ma it depends on what your goals are and what you're hoping to get out of the relationship. It's a very slippery issue and it's very difficult to measure. And there have been plenty of studies of people trying to take um, polls or conduct survey data in order to try and establish if there's a relationship between, for example, um, students who studied in the United States and pro-democracy attitudes, for example. And it, it can be really difficult. Um, different political scientists and researchers have posited different types of relationships. Um, and so it's really hard to measure, particularly something like attitudes, but also how those attitudes might translate into particular policies. Um, I think per personally that it really depends on, on context in many ways. And um, in the Cuban case with the Soviet Union, what my research found is that in some ways, this soft power, quote unquote, worked, and in some ways it didn't work. And what I mean by that is many students, most whom I interviewed, and I interviewed over 50, um, had very kind of pro-Soviet attitudes. They were grateful for the education they received. They felt they had a very good education. They met lots of people. They felt a real affinity for Soviet culture. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean that they agreed with all of the politics and all of the decisions that the Soviet government made. 
Um, and so I think that just speaks to the idea that it's hard to control people. And certainly I found that it wasn't necessarily macro level politics or economics that was driving these students change in attitudes. It was really about the everyday things. You know, did I have enough to eat? What's my dorm like? Were people nice to me? Um, these kind of things. Right, because I imagine doing a foreign exchange to a country such as the USSR and to, say, America um, would be a completely different experience, right? Because if you look at a democratic country, trying to figure out whether this foreign student has taken on some of the political uh, sort of values and opinions of the US would be difficult, firstly, because it's a democratic country and the party in power obviously changes. So mm. has the student taken on some of the opinions from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, or did it change because there was a change in power whilst this student was studying in that country? Whereas in the USSR, obviously, there's no change in party. And so does it matter whether a country is democratic or not democratic? Certainly. Um, I think a lot of the early literature was very much about this question of democracy, particularly soft power in the political science literature got a huge boost in popularity, I guess, after 9-11 um, and when sort of the global war on terrorism was happening. And a lot of Americans were concerned with how we can get other countries to, well, I guess the failure of, in many ways, of US policy made people concerned about how we can get other people to care about democracy. You know, why, why do they hate us, quote unquote. Um, and so I think a lot of the literature was very much about democracy. And now you're starting to see more people um, research students in or uh, political influence and changes of attitudes in authoritarian regimes. One thing I would point out, though, is I think what matters a lot is not only the country that you're going to and the political regime that's in place there, but also the place that you came from. That's something that I found as well as expectations um, in many ways influence the ultimate um, perceptions that you have of a place. For example, the Cubans, you would think um, that or the Soviets rather thought, well, Cuba is a very underdeveloped country. Um, we are a scientific powerhouse. They're going to come here and be amazed. And in some ways that was true. But in other ways, uh, it didn't work out that way. For example, Cuba had a long history of very good health care. And when they students went to the Soviet Union and they found that the state of Soviet health care was so much more backward um, or less advanced than what they were experiencing at home, that really made them question the validity um, of this so socialist model and the idea that the Soviet Union was an economic paradise. Um, so I think that matters a lot as well. And I actually did notice some change over time, even though the Soviet, the Communist Party was in place for the duration of these exchanges, it was very different in the 60s. Um, for example, compared to the 1980s with Gorbachev, when things were um, starting to fall apart, or things were starting to open up. Right. And with all of this in mind, is it interesting to you, and can you just comment on, the fact that Xi Jinping's daughter went to Harvard? Because I find that... Yes, I think that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I know China's anti... Well, has like an anti-USA stance, on the most part. and But he can't on a personal level, right, if he's going to send his daughter there to for university. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I wonder. I'm I'm hesitant to speculate about the thoughts of of the Chinese president. I think that I would totally fail there. Um, but I think it's very very interesting. I forget when she graduated, maybe 2015 or something. I know that many people did. Most people did not know her real identity. She was under a pseudonym. I would be very curious to hear or to learn. Although I think this is impossible. What kind of impact those studies had on her? Um, beliefs and perceptions. Um, although the topic of Chinese students in the United States is now gaining a lot of prominence, and per- perhaps in the UK as well, I'm not sure, um, because there have been, you know, charges of or fears in some cases of intelligence work being carried out, um, scientific secrets being, you know, shared and things like that. Um, and so there's certainly a debate about to what degree do we need to be suspicious of particular students who come um, from countries like China. And I don't know if I don't know enough about that topic really to comment on it, but there have been plenty of books and articles, both academic and more popular written about that topic. And I think it's a fascinating one. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's move on to Chernobyl. So your work is on the international reaction to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster of 1986. What is the central debate in your research? Um, so what I think is very interesting is this kind of puzzle that that I have, I believe, to have uncovered, and I'm still in the throes of my research, so I'm hesitant to uh, make any categorical claims or arguments at this point. But what I think is really interesting um, is the proliferation of Chern- children of Chernobyl charities that happened after the accident, particularly after in the late days of the Soviet Union, in the early 90s and afterward, basically in the three countries that were affected by the disaster, which is Ukraine, where the disaster took place, Belarus, which actually received the highest proportion of radioactive fallout, um, and Russia. In those three countries, there have been a, there was a lot of charity work by international charities and sort of local grassroots NGOs to provide aid to um, children victims of the accident, and that came in the form of building hospitals, um, sending food, sending clothing, that kind of thing. But a lot of trips abroad, so a lot of children were taken abroad both for medical care and sort of for recuperation and holidays to live with host families in foreign countries. Um, And what I think is really interesting about that is particularly comparing the cases of Belarus and Ukraine, um, because both have had a significant amount of interest um, from these charities. But my research at least seems to suggest at this point that Belarus had perhaps a more active international aid community for these children charities. But what's interesting about that is Belarus is... Um, currently a consolidated authoritarian regime, although you may have been following, there have been some massive protests um, in the past year, which is very interesting, although I won't get us sidetracked. But what's interesting is Belarus, and particularly its president Lukashenko, is very suspicious of Western influence and has been um, hesitant and uh, reactionary in many ways with respect to the Chernobyl disaster, has tried not to acknowledge the scale, has consistently minimized the consequences of the disaster. And so it's interesting to me that there would be so much charity work, particularly with foreign NGOs in a country where the regime is very skeptical, not only to Western influence, quote unquote, but also to the Chernobyl disaster. Um, And so I'm kind of trying to explore this. So why in this country would there be more, perhaps, uh, engagement than in a country like Ukraine, um, which is 
although it has problems, a democratic country, um, and which has a lot more, generally a lot more uh, interaction with Western countries and aid organizations. Um, so that's sort of the puzzle that I'm working with to explain um, how these countries and their perceive aid, what they want to get out of it, and how their internal political situations influence the outcomes in terms of these programs. Right. And before we get on to the aid response from the international community, what was the response from the international community more generally? So it's very interesting. At the at the beginning, um, when the Chernobyl disaster took place, the Soviet government very much tried to keep a lid on it. Um, but word got out quite quickly. In Sweden, they picked up traces of radioactive um, particles. I'm not a scientist, so I'll be careful with the terminology here. Um, and it became an international sensation in many ways um, and was a way for Western countries and countries all over the globe to criticize the Soviet Union. Many people... Um, and I, being one of them, believe that Chernobyl and the secrecy around it helped and the failure of the response helped to contribute to sort of the decline of the Soviet Union. Um, and so on the one hand, Western countries very much use this to criticize the USSR. But on the other hand, um, many international organizations, including the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is under the umbrella of the UN, minimized the consequences of the Chernobyl accident and lots of scientists. This is a very controversial topic, but argued that actually the health impact was pretty minimal. Um, and they were basing their research on studies that had been done on victims of the atomic bombings in Japan. Um, however, a lot of recent scholarship has found that, in fact, um, the impact on people's health was a lot worse than the international community wanted to admit. And in part, they charged that the IAEA um, and other Western powers like the United States had a vested interest in minimizing, in fact, the consequences of the disaster um, because they themselves had carried out a lot of nuclear tests and they wanted to promote nuclear power as kind of a peaceful energy source. Um, and so is, there are some sort of conspiracy theories going on, but I think that's a really interesting topic, that in fact, um, the narrative of Western scientists very much corresponded to what the Soviet government wanted to do, which was minimize the, um, the impact of the disaster. Right. And so looking at it all from the, the 21st century, now looking back, is it getting easier to out, I guess, the USA for that reaction? I think in some ways, yes. And I think in some ways, it's still very contentious, um, because there was never a really long term um, study done on the health impacts in a systematic way. And so right now you have, and one of the books that I think is really great, um, is Kate Brown's Manual for Survival, which tries to tackle this issue and use various data sources and triangulation to actually look at and rethink about um, reconsider rather the consequences. But the lack of data is really unfortunate. And so it is still kind of difficult to draw clear cause and effect relationship between the accident and health outcomes, which makes it contentious. And there are lots of different ways that you can interpret data. And so still, I think now there's more challenges um, to this notion that there wasn't a big impact, but it is very much up for debate and there are very much different opinions. Right. And so let's move on to the researcher recommendations. Can you give us your first book recommendation, please? Sure. Um, well, that one I just mentioned, which is Kate Brown. She's an historian at MIT, um, and that is called Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide to the Future. It's a really fantastic recent 
book from 2019. I've actually met Kate Brown, and she's fan she's fantastic, very intelligent, um, and she very much challenges this prevailing notion that the health and environmental consequences um, of the disaster were limited, and that was a notion that is still to this day, I think, quite prominent in scientific circles, certainly in UN reports, that was what was promoted. And so she has this really amazing account of the disaster using so much fieldwork and data collection, over two dozen archives, interviews, data collection in villages and contaminated territories. And I think it's very much a devastating account of the effects of the disaster, and it implicates a lot of actors in, in policies of secrecy, which were ultimately very damaging for people. Great. And your next recommendation? Um, and my next one is Svetlana Alexievich's Voices from Chernobyl. I think the UK translation is Chernobyl Prayer, which is more close to the original. That was originally published in Russian, and it's by a Belarusian um, Nobel laureate. She won the Nobel Prize in 2015. And it's basically a, a collection of oral histories about the um, disaster. And so she interviews, she's a journalist, Alexievich, who interviews firefighters, liquidators, those who cleaned up the disaster, their families, doctors, scientists, evacuees. Um, and so it, it talks about how this tragedy affected their lives. Um, and it's really, really wonderful and in part inspired the HBO series Chernobyl, which has been very popular in the past couple of years. Right. And you have some more? A couple I'll just mention briefly. Um, if you're looking for history about Chernobyl or Ukraine, um, Serhii Plokhi, uh, also shout out, was a professor of mine at Harvard and is a wonderful, um, prominent historian of Ukraine. He has published, I think in 2018, um, a history book called Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy, which is also very well researched. And he has a broader history book about Ukraine, which is quite accessible, called The Gates of Europe, a history of Ukraine. And then one other book that I will sort of give a shout out to is David Sacconi's Politics for Profit. This actually has almost nothing to, it does have nothing to do with Chernobyl, but it's just an unrelated book um, of political science research on the region that I read recently and really enjoyed. It's about businessmen, politicians in Russia. Um, so unrelated, but super interesting and, again, super rigorous research. So I encourage you to check out all of those, particularly the first two if you're interested in the Chernobyl issue. Great. Amazing. Thank you very, very much. And Isabel, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I wish you all the best with the future of your studies. Thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful. Um, and I look forward to hearing what the other participants have to say about their research. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have enjoyed it, please do us a massive favor and tell all of your friends about the Hardcore Humanities podcast. You could also give us a good rating or review and follow us on social media. And don't forget to check out our researcher recommendations. Until next time, ciao for now.